Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Deborah Cox is a Canadian music legend. I mean, last year she was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. But starting out, Canadian major labels didn't want her. And, well, she showed them. But what I loved about this conversation we had is Deborah talks about holding gratitude in one hand and the memory of rejection in the other. Deborah Cox coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let's listen to some music. Legendary Deborah Cox, her big hit, Things Just Ain't the Same. Let's talk about this for a second. I know I just mentioned it, but it's, it's worth mentioning. Back in 2022, Deborah gets inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. It makes big news, especially here in Canada, because she becomes the first black woman ever to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. The second black artist ever. Oscar Peterson got inducted back in the late 70s. Let's be honest here. That lack of diversity in how we celebrate Canadian musicians, that's nothing to celebrate. It speaks to the tons of roadblocks that Deborah Cox has had to overcome in her career. I mean, she'll tell you in this interview, pretty much every Canadian major record label turned her down. So she had to go to the stage. She had to find her own audience. And she's really built an incredible career. Six top 20 Billboard R&B singles, 13 number one hits on Billboard's Hot Dance Club play chart, three Juno Awards, a Soul Train Award, a Lady of Soul Award, a Grammy nomination. I mean, the list goes on and on. News just came out that Deborah is going to be joining the cast of The Wiz on Broadway. So we thought it was a good time to revisit our conversation with Deborah. We recorded this uh, at, her, at her friend's house. We filmed it. We put it online. Um, we started out by talking about how it felt to get inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. I had no idea. And Jan Arden's like, hey, and I thought she was going to talk about her, her new puppy because I, I see it on Instagram and I'm thinking it's super cute. And then she's like, you know, well, I just want to let you know, Deborah, that, you know, we love your, your music and everything you've, you've done and your legacy. And congratulations, <laughs> you're going to be inducted into the, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And I just, I was shocked. I didn't even realize what she was saying, you know. It still kind of hasn't hit me. I just never thought that that was in, in within my reach. Like, I just never thought about the impact that I was actually making, you know, with all the, all the hard work and everything that I've been doing. I just never, I just never saw this in, in, in my view. Where did you grow up in Toronto? I grew up in, in Flemington Park and then moved to Scarborough when I started to uh, um, when I went to high school. What was, what was life like growing up for you? It was um, pretty, pretty humble. I mean, we were very, both my parents were, you know, working parents, but we really had to work hard for everything. So all I know is hard work. I, I know about struggle and I know about like really hustling to try to make ends meet. And, um, and that's how it's always been. Mm-hmm. And I always walk around with a really great, 
big sense of gratitude because I know how hard it was for me working up, working, um, working in this industry yeah. and, and um, getting to this place. You know, it was just always a struggle. Was there much music in the house? Always music in the house. That was always the, that was my escape. You know, music was my escape from just life, life being hard or life. Um, it was my church, I like to say. It was like my, my solace, my um, peace. Music was always there to just be my refuge. Like what? Was it a, what was it? A tape player? Was it a record oh, player? Oh yeah, it was cassette. It was cassette uh, and vinyl. And what were you listening to? What was it? What was it? <laughs> Everything from Stevie Wonder to Gladys Knight to Joe Tex to Bob Marley to Joan Amatrading to, I mean, like old school, all different types of music to Donna Summer to Cher to Whitney Houston to the Eurythmics. To everything that was on the radio at the time. Like, were you singing along? Oh, yeah. I picked up melodies like that. It was just like, whenever there's anything playing, I can just pick it up right away. When did you something know? Something that resounds in me, you know? When did you know you had a gift for it? I knew early. I knew really early. Probably about six or seven years old. I knew that my voice was different. And I knew that I could sing anything. And uh, I was just very shy to perform in front of people. But I knew that music was going to be my way out of poverty and humble beginnings. And I knew that I wanted to, you know, um, I wanted to be able to have the opportunity to go to Disneyland for Christmas break or, you know, go to the cottage during spring break. You know what I mean? We never had those opportunities. So yeah, when I think about my childhood, I think about, man, just the community and all the other working people, all of the other immigrants and people that were just like really struggling and working really, really hard to just see their kids have an opportunity. And you were singing. You were singing. I was singing any public, talent shows. Talent shows? What were you singing in the talent shows? <laughs> um, you know, 80s R&B, 80s pop stuff. Um, so, like, I would listen to... Okay, these were my songs. Love okay. Come Down by Evelyn Champagne King. Baby, you make my love. Anything by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, uh, oh my gosh. And then it was like the 80s pop stuff. Spandau Ballet and the Eurythmics <laughs> and <laughs> everything that was on Much Music. I mean, I just sang anything and everything. I was in cover bands. I was, you know, singing commercial jingles, doing background session work. Jingles? Yeah, commercial jingles. Like from what? Marvelous Muffins. Oh, those marvelous muffins <laughs> seem to be popping up everywhere. And Mazda commercials, um, car commercials. Um, and I mean, I was still getting residual checks when, when, when we moved. Like, that it was, it, it was good money. What a thing to happen to you at 12 years old to start making money from your music. Yes, yes. Like, what a game changer that must be for you. Yeah. yeah. I was doing good session work. I was singing backgrounds and bands, cover bands. Um, yeah, that was, was my own little pocket money. <laughs> so... Let's flash forward a little bit. I guess it would have been the early 90s where you meet uh, LaSalle's in high school, who's now mm-hmm. your husband. Two of you guys are living in an apartment in Scarborough writing songs together. Yeah, LaSalle was, you know, the songwriter, producer. And um, the two of us just clicked. Like, he could finish my sentences if we were writing together or writing songs. And that's how we met. And, um, and I fell in love instantly. <laughs> where, did <you laughs> where, where did you meet? Where did you meet? There was this club in uh, Yorkville. And um, he was playing bass and killing it on the bass, like killing it. And on bass synth, 
And I was like, that is my husband. That's the first time that's ever been uttered. <laughs> that was the first that someone playing bass synth, someone watched someone on bass synth and went, that's my husband. He that's the first playing, time it's ever happened. He, listen, he had a groove. He had just this way of his style. Yeah. And I was just like, man, this dude is dope. <laughs> and I was just mesmerized and he played the song and I was like, man, this dude is so sexy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I... <laughs> All you fellas watching was, this, get I on the was bass mesmerized, but I, he, he had no clue. <laughs> and then little, little, year, maybe two or three years later, um, then we got together and we started writing songs. And then yeah. he helped me put my demo tape together. Yeah. And, um, and then we just started to get closer and closer. And we just had this, this real beautiful connection. I just knew that he was somebody that was going to be in my life for a long, long time. I don't, I don't think you can get to the great parts of life without the hard parts in life, yeah. you know? And I know that when you first started seeing these demos, that you got a lot of no's. Oh, yeah. In Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a lot of no's. And I think at, just at the time, it was such a, it was, it was you know, it's 80s rock and roll. It's, it's um, Rush. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Brian Adams. It's like really big, um, uh, there was a real big rock presence. Yeah. And so that's what stations were playing. And so I think when I, when, when the demo tapes were, were going out, I don't think there was, well, I do know that there was no infrastructure at all. There were no radio stations. There was no flow. There was no much, you know, much music soul. There were, you know, none of that stuff was in place when we were, you know, shopping a deal. There was no support and, um, for black music. There was in no Canada. support for black music, no. no. And and sadly that's what it was. So we took our talents, <laughs> you know, stateside and um and just were very aggressive about getting the demos heard. You know what I mean? We didn't take no for an answer. We just knew that we had something to offer. So we flew to London, we flew to uh to Minneapolis, um we like flew to Prince New Minneapolis? York. Yes, we were like, we're gonna meet Jam and Lewis. And we, we, were, we were just confident. <laughs> and LaSalle and I, we booked our tickets. Yeah. And um, my sister was like doing a show, uh, a musical. And so we were like, we crashed her hotel and we stayed there. We slept on the floor. We met um, a few A&Rs execs. And they were like, we love the songs, but if you could just tweak a few things. And then we came back here and we, we were at our little apartment in Scarborough. And we wrote, where do we go from here? And that was the song that changed the game. Was it a hard decision to move to the States? It was. To leave Canada? We missed a lot of birthdays and weddings, and we missed a lot of family functions, and we missed our friends, and we were trying to do, you know, um, we were just, yeah, I mean, we just didn't have the money to, like, be yeah. flying back and forth and doing all that. So we, we really struggled <laughs> a lot. It was, there were some real, real hard times out there. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You, you meet Clive Davis, this, you know, music mogul, this, you know, incredibly important mm-hmm. figure in the development and history of popular music. Yeah. Tell me about your first conversation with him. First, first conversation, um, he listened to the songs. He, it was a phone conversation. And he got, he he got the like, song. Someone got the Oh, yeah, he got the demo. He got okay. the demo and loved the, the, the demo and was just like, we should meet. We should, you know, talk about the kind of album that you wanted to create. And... He just talked about just the way that he loved the songs and loved the way my voice sounded and really was very, very encouraging, not just about my voice, but about the songwriting, too. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was very impressed with that because, you know, it was a very very new thing for me to to feel um, comfortable even writing songs and creating a sound for myself. And it was something that I felt really vulnerable doing. Why? Just because I think... I don't know. I think songwriting is really, really close to, you know, who, the, the essence of who you are. It's an expression you know? of your spirit. It yeah. really is. Yeah. yeah. So I was just really nervous about the reaction. Because a no to a song that yeah, you wrote is a no to you. A no to a song no is like you. saying a no to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. You, you didn't get a no. I didn't get a no. No. It was very, very, he was really supportive. And he was just like, you know, who are some of your favorites that you like to you know, work with or collaborate with. And I just named, I just named a bunch of different people, you know, <laughs> Jimmy Jam, Sherry Lewis, you know, Dallas Austin, <laughs> Babyface, mm-hmm. thinking, I mean, what are the odds of that happening? And it happened. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he set up all these sessions and, and opportunities to work with all these producers, you know, and we were in the studio working with all these great legendary People was awesome, but I can't. I can't imagine the feeling of like because everything you've told me up until now is the story of you grinding yes. like against all odds. Like yeah. it knows from the Canadian music industry, right. you know, like no infrastructure here in Canada for your music. You move to the states away from your family. You miss birthdays and weddings yes. and all that stuff. You're traveling on a bus with you know doing background singing and you're trying to get your demos into there. Like yeah, what a feeling it must have been. When you finally felt like, oh, my God, this might have been worth it. Yes. Yes. I think it was just about finding that confidence. Yeah. You know, in spite of all the no's, it was about finding that, you know, the silver lining. I mean, I've always had a very positive perspective anyway. I've always seen the glass half full with everything. And I think also having a great, strong faith has helped me, Yeah, you know, to always stay really spiritually grounded. And that has always just kept my my spirits up. And so that was a part of the reason why I was able to continue to just gain the momentum from the opportunities and just sustain. So I want to flash forward a little bit here. Yes. So by the late 90s, you've released two records, had a ton of success, hit singles, but there's one song that really got you the dedicated fan base that's still with you today. That's Nobody's Supposed to Be Here from 1998. Just take a listen to this. Nobody's supposed to be here. I tried that love 
So we mashed together two versions there, the original R&B ballad and then the dance mix that came out just a while after. Both versions become number one hits. Was it intentional to have the two versions? No! <laughs> Around that time, it was, it, it kind of became like a prerequisite to do a dance version of an R&B song. Because we did it with Who Do You Love? We did it with Things Just Ain't The Same. With Nobody's Supposed To Be Here, I never imagined that the song would translate into a dance record because it was so soulful. It was so gospel, you know, or it had that, that, that um, you know, that real soulful yeah. underbelly yeah. of it, you know? Yeah. So when, you know, we talked about doing a version and Hex Hector, you know, played the, the music, I was a little skeptical. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want the song to be, you don't want it to be corny. Yeah. You were worried about it being corny? I was worried about it being corny. I was like, listen, it's got to be right. But he played the music and I was like, hmm. First of all, he changed it from a minor key to a major key. This is getting kind of technical. Yeah, I get you. But I was like, wow, sad, sad it happy. actually works. Yeah. 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 And I said, um, all right, well, we, we went into the studio and, and I re-recorded it. And then it just, it, it turned into this more like, like a real revival moment. And, and then I think that version just lived and had a, a life of its own. How so? Like what, what doors did that version open up for you? I think it really cemented my connection with the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Um, at that point, I was really doing a lot of club gigs. I was doing a lot of the circuit parties. I was doing a lot of stuff internationally. I got to play you one more thing. And mm-hmm. this, is not, this is not a performance from okay. the Juno. So... Um, and I'll tell you what this is afterwards, okay? okay? So take a listen to this. <laughs> a clip of you performing at Phoenix Pride last year in 2021. All this excitement and all this applause and all these people going crazy. The reason I wanted to play that is because, and I'll kind of pick it up from here, you started playing Pride events really early. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 96, 97. I mean, I remember the, the Palladium. I remember pulling up to, first of all, when they told me about the show, they were like, it's a seven o'clock performance. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? So I just treated it like a, nor- a, a morning show and I, I slept the night and I got up at like five, warmed up, was like super disciplined. I get to the club and everyone's basically naked with socks. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I was what time is, is this happening? in the morning? This is like 6.30 in the morning. Right, right, okay. And DJ, you know, um, Junior Vasquez is spinning. And like, I would always turn up at these clubs with like the hottest DJs playing the songs. And I was like, okay, this is what it is. And I get up there and there's drag queens and there's naked people everywhere. And it's just like everybody's partying. So I get up there and I start to sing Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. The club remix. The club remix, yeah. And they are losing it. They are singing at the top of their lungs and just like vibing out. And then I break it, at, break it down to where do we go from here? And a lot of people just didn't do ballads at circuit parties because, you know, people want to just dance. Um, but they thought that it was pretty courageous to just go into a club at that time in the morning and do a ballad. And I was just like, well, come on, this sound system is dope. <laughs> well, I want to, you know. Um, and, and then, and it just became this thing. So I would just hit the clubs four or five in the morning and, and do all the, do all my remixes. Sometimes just do like what you call mashups. Um, 
you know, and just merge all of these different versions of, of, of the hits and perform them. Why do you think your music and that song was so meaningful to that community? I think a lot of the, the LGBTQ community find their story within the songs, you know, this empowerment, this strength. Um, a lot of the, the storytelling is, is really very telling of, of the life that they've lived or gone through or, you know, they just can relate to it. What is something that maybe some of your fandom in the queer community, what, what's something someone said to you about your music? Um, that I've t- helped to tell their story, yeah. that I helped to, um, that the music was their soundtrack to their life. They were able to come out. They felt empowered, like songs like Absolutely Not, songs like um, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. They felt like they were, that I brought emotion to the dance floor. What did that mean to you? Oh, it meant the world to me. I, I would be in tears sometimes before a show because I'm just so taken by their stories. And, um, you know, I'm really touched by that. Like genuinely just like, I just can't believe that a song that maybe I grappled with the idea of even recording, that that song actually, you know, touched someone. You know what I mean? There's a story I heard one time that I wanted to see if you remembered. It was... And you you told it on stage at World Pride in mm-hmm. New York. It was about the time you went to the Stonewall National oh, Monument. Yeah. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Yes. Can you tell that story? I went to the Stonewall. Um, we just marched um, and and got to Stonewall. And I had just finished doing the, the bodyguard tour. And this person came up to me and said, you'll never know what it meant to me that, um, you know, you your voice and your music again was a soundtrack to my life. I was at the Pulse shooting and I lost my, all of my friends. You know, we were there just to have a good time and your music was, was that. So to, to have you and to see you here, you know, um, sharing in the pain that we all feel, um, it means everything. And I was just like, you know, so he's like, he, he took off his, um, he took the bow off of him, uh, and and put it on me and was like, you know, can you just wear this during your performance so that it just shows, you know, solidarity and and uh, and I just broke down and cried yeah. and I was like, wow, yeah, of course, you know, I just felt honored to to be able to express what he was feeling. What's it like to come home to Toronto now and see? I mean, not only is there a scene here that, did, scene. that didn't exist, <laughs> it is. I mean, Toronto is making... The, it's a huge cosmopolitan the, city. And it's world-renowned. Yeah. And the R&B and, and hip-hop and soul music. like the, Has grown immensely. And it's the, it's the biggest music in mm-hmm. the world right now coming from Toronto, mm-hmm. from Black artists in Toronto. It's awesome. It's awesome to be a pioneer. It's awesome to be recognized as someone who has brought soul music from, from this amazing uh, country that, that really fueled me with a lot of great music. Like I listened to incredible artists and I was able to turn that into my own soul, you know what I mean? And put out my own music and, 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 and be the voice for that as well. So I feel really proud. I feel really, you know, able to, to be able to keep my integrity and, yeah. and my authenticity, you know, and not have to change who I am. It's, it's beautiful. Before we go, can you, in your... Can you do me a favor? In your mind's eye, picture 12-year-old Deborah in the booth singing in a, <laughs> for a jingle for a commercial. For, what was the muffins? What was the muffins? 
What was it called? Marvelous Muffins. Yeah. Picture her. Yes. With all those dreams and challenges in front of her. Mm-hmm. And you are here now with this induction into the Canadian Music oh, Hall of Fame. Oh, my God. Talk to her for me. What would you say? Oh, my gosh. It brings tears to my eyes. I just see this little girl with braces and just like her bangs and her pigtails and no self-confidence and just like, <laughs> woo. I would just tell her to just, um, oh, Tom, you're not supposed to do this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you got this, you know, just breathe. Um, you're beautiful. And just let God continue to use you, you know? Um, yeah. 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 That's great. Um, <laughs> congratulations. Congratulations. I'm sorry. I didn't oh mean to. I didn't God. mean to. Deborah, congratulations on <laughs> the Hall you. of Fame. It's, it's so richly, richly deserved. Everyone here is so happy. It's finally happening. Yes. And thank it's, you. It's, it's about <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much. God love thank you. you. Thank you. God, 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 we're good. We're good. We're good. God love you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. My conversation with the legendary Deborah Cox, who plays Glinda in the upcoming revival of The Wiz. The show hits Broadway in spring 2024. Well, that is it for this episode of Q. The other conversation uh, we uploaded today is with Kwame Alexander, who is a best-selling author of poetry and children's books. He set out to write a collection of love poems, but ended up writing a memoir about his own learning how to love at all. And he has a great line about the appearance of vulnerability versus actual vulnerability. He was like, I was writing these quote-unquote vulnerable poems, but they were all metaphor and, and, you know, literary devices. They weren't actual vulnerability. And it reminds me of something someone said to me one time. I, I asked him, uh, this, I can't remember who it was, but it was a singer, and I said, do you find writing music therapeutic? And he said, yeah, I find it therapeutic, but I find that therapy is, is therapy. <laughs> so I found, I, I love that kind of distinction. Anyway, that conversation is up on our podcast feed. Um, that's it for me for a little while. Talia Schlanger will be sitting in for me for the next few weeks. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.